0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? Merry Christmas. Let's go. John chapter 1 is where we find ourselves this morning. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open it to John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, maybe you forgot yours, maybe you're not yet a Christian and you were invited here, or you're a newer Christian and you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to use one of the Bibles that we provide for you in the seat in front of you. In fact, you can keep that Bible as your own if you don't have a Bible, and because it's Christmas, even if you have a Bible, and that would be an upgrade. Go ahead and take that one. That's just our gift to you. I usually sort of uh, discourage that, but... But we want you to have the Word of God open on your lap as we, as we look at God's Word this morning. We've been working through a short Advent series. Uh, I was tempted to just summarize Will and Robert's excellent message to put them together and just play that for you because their messages these past two weeks out of Luke, Matthew, and then Luke have been excellent. If you miss them, I encourage you to get a CD that's on the information desk. This morning we'll be looking at John chapter 1. And then just to give you a heads up of where we're going, we're going to do a few individual messages in January looking at what it means to be a church centered around the gospel and our responsibility and missions. And then shortly after the new year, we're going to pick back up where we left off in Genesis, Genesis chapter 28. Remember, we spent about a year going through the first half of Genesis. We're going to pick back up in Genesis and Lord willing, finish that. Uh, in 2015 and then get into some other things. But this morning we find ourselves in John chapter 1. Now before we, we read John chapter 1, uh, let me tell you just what today is about. Usually we do a, an exposition of a, a longer passage of scripture and we're going to read the first 14 chapter, first 14 verses. Breathe, exhale. The first 14 verses of John 1 this morning, but we're going to center on verse 14 and just this theological concept, this all-important doctrine of the incarnation, that God Himself, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, God the Son, became, took on flesh and became fully man. Now this truth... J.I. Packer, a very respected theologian, older gentleman in his 90s now, I believe, who's from, from England, says that this is the deepest of all theological mysteries and truths. And this truth of God become man, Jesus, fully God, fully man, has been a truth that's been misunderstood and had, when misunderstood has given rise to great error in the history of the church. If we look at Jesus as just being fully man, maybe a good teacher like some liberal theologians might like to see him as merely as just a, a remarkable teacher and not fully God, then the New Testament in fact the Bible itself makes no sense because Jesus clearly claims to be God. And if we look at the Bible as just presenting Jesus to be God and not fully man, then again, I would submit that the Bible, the New Testament, would be like a a drawbridge that never actually lowers. It would be a truth that we can never pass across. It never actually touches ground. But no, the Bible clearly tells us that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And in this doctrine that may seem sort of academic and unnecessary to press into you, rests the whole message of the gospel. And so we're going to look at this truth deeply as we unpack verse 14. But before that, we'll read John 1. Starting at verse 1. Before I read, I'm going to pray. Usually I read and then pray, but I'm going to pray this morning. And I feel particularly burdened for some reason to just pray for our nation To pray for our president, to pray for our military, to pray for race relations in our country. And so I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to help us and to help us see that the answer to all of these things is God become man. So let me pray. Father, as we open up your word, we We thank you for your great grace to us. This is your inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word. It is sufficient to show us all things for life and godliness and to reveal Christ to us, the way to reconciliation with our triune creator, sovereign God. Lord, as we gather in comfort this morning, in peace in this room, there is a world that rages around us. We pray in particular for our president. We thank you for President Obama, as the scriptures call us to do. We do thank you for him. We pray that you would give him grace and discernment. We pray that you would protect him and his marriage and his children. In the areas, Lord, where we as Bible-believing Christians would clearly and passionately disagree with many of his policies that we would consider evil. We pray that you would either change his heart or that you would thwart the consequences of some of his policies. Nevertheless, we pray that you would give him wisdom to lead our country. We pray the same for all of our politicians in Congress and our governor of the state and the mayor of the city. Lord, we pray for our military men and women. Some from this very church. Think of Chuck Albertson deployed with the Ranger Regiment in Afghanistan in very dangerous settings. Men from this church who have gone on to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and are now being redeployed again to Iraq. Lord, would you give them grace and protection? Lord, would you use them as instruments of justice, even as they are part of a government and a military that certainly is not perfect? But would you use them as means of justice, as you tell us in Romans 13, to bring justice in this world and to stop evil, wicked men? Would you bring them home safely? Lord, we pray for our nation, and we, we grieve with any life that is lost. And we grieve with these two policemen in New York that were killed so viciously yesterday. And we grieve with the families in Missouri and New York that lost their loved ones. Lord, help us to More closely identify ourselves with you than any cultural or ethnic group. As blood bought believers in Jesus, we are knit together in Christ with other believers far greater and far more eternally than we are with anybody of our own skin color. May we as a church be a gospel voice, not a political voice. And may this very church be a fountain of reconciliation between God and man vertically and how that works out horizontally between the races. Lord, would this place be a fountain of the peace and reconciliation that comes from the gospel. And Lord, we know that all of this is only possible because you became flesh in the person of Jesus and bore our sin and defeated it and rose again triumphant. So as we think deeply about the hope of the gospel, about the beauty and the mystery of the incarnation, tune our hearts in to this great truth and reality. And would you call unbelievers faith this morning, would you make Jesus and his person and his work so beautiful, so irresistible that they cannot help but look away from themselves and look in faith and love to him. And Lord, for your children that are in this room, would you stir our affections and melt our hearts and humble us and embolden us to worship you more passionately. I pray all these things, Lord, for the glory of God and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's read John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The Apostle John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let's stop there very briefly and admit to our modern American ears this, this idea of Word seems a bit sort of intangible and ambiguous, and what John is clearly referring to here is Jesus. So when you see that Word, a capital W Word, he's speaking of Jesus, the Son of God, and he's using that concept of the word to do two things. He's, he's tying, in just a moment, he's going to talk about how Jesus is himself God and the creator of all things. So he's tying Jesus into even the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, where we see the word of God going forth and creating all things. But he's also mindful of his audience, which was very his his first century audience, which was very influenced by Greek philosophy that had this, this notion that there was this there was this great word or reason that was this impersonable, impersonal force which was the, the sort of reason behind all things. And John is 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 sort of making association with their thought pattern and saying this, this word that you sort of define as an impersonal reason force that created all things. No, we're actually talking about God himself in the flesh, the very personal, the very personal word of God, the son of God. So he continues, verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And now here's our text that we want to settle down on, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I have two points and we're going to hang all of our thoughts on these and they'll come up on the screen as we work through them if you're taking notes. These two points are that Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man. So the first, Jesus is fully God. That's the first half of the incarnation that we must realize that the Bible, the truth of the gospel, that everything rests upon Jesus is fully God. That's what this text has told us. The scriptures clearly teach it. We see it in our text that we just read and we see it, by the way, in the text that Reuben read this morning for us for the call to worship. So in John chapter 1, verse verse 1 there. It says, in the beginning, let's read it again, was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things were made through him. So he's speaking about Jesus. You see, even in these opening verses of John, we see the at least two of the three persons of the Trinity, we see God the Father and then the Word, God the Son, and then specifically about God the Son in verse 3, John says that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus is the creator, clearly called God. In Colossians chapter 1, Reuben read it earlier. Let's read verses 15 through 17 again. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, don't be tripped up by that word firstborn. Born, maybe if you're witnessing to a Jehovah's Witness or one comes to your door and they point to that word firstborn there and they argue from that word that Jesus is created, that he has a finite beginning, that he's not part of the pre existent eternal Trinity. What that word there that Paul is getting at in firstborn is, he's not speaking about a temporal aspect of Jesus's creation or birth. He's speaking about Jesus' rights and privilege as the Son of God. So He is the image of the invisible God, the, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him... All things were created. So how can he create all things if he himself is born? Do you see even how that that verse within itself sort of nullifies that faulty logic? For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Friends, we could go on and on. The scriptures clearly teach that Jesus is fully God. We see it not just in the New Testament. We see it in the Old Testament. A couple weeks ago, Will did a wonderful job of showing us how the Old Testament, particularly the prophets, Isaiah in particular, he centered on how these Old Testament prophets are speaking about the one who is coming, the Messiah who is coming, and we see it fulfilled and we see that being the particular concern of Matthew to show us how much of the Old Testament is being fulfilled in Jesus. So, we see it in the Old Testament in the prophet Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. This is a a familiar passage, I'm sure, to many of us, especially during Christmas time. Listen to this prophecy about this child to be born that we know is Jesus, but then notice What it says about Jesus. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So we see not just in the New Testament, but we see in the Old Testament that Jesus is. God we I think even see it in the beginning chapter of Genesis where we see God speaking when he's creating mankind and he uses this plural word to describe himself I think giving us an echo of the Trinity in Genesis 1 he says let us create man in our own image so we see it in Jesus's uh, we see it in John 1 and Colossians 1 we see it in the Old Testament and then we see it I think very clearly taught. In the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 1, I want you to see this because I think this would just be a wonderful, just, just a, a, to arm you with this knowledge of how the scriptures speak clearly to the deity or the godness, the full godness of Jesus. So in Hebrews chapter 1, listen to this, starting in verse 1, the writer of Hebrews says this, "'Long ago, many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets.'" But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. Verse 3, now listen to what verse 3 says about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe By the word of his power. Now he's going to continue. And one of the concerns and themes of Hebrews is that the writer of Hebrews is showing us who Jesus is and how Jesus is better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Abraham. Jesus is this new and better covenant. And so we see here in the first chapter of Hebrews that the writer is going to show what God the Father, how God interprets the Old Testament. And speaks about how some of the Psalms write about God. How God the Father is going to read the Old Testament that he wrote. And he's going to interpret it as speaking in some places where it says God is speaking about Jesus. So we get God's commentary on the Old Testament. At least a couple Psalms. Can I just offer to you that God is a better Old Testament scholar than we are? He's a better Old Testament scholar than any liberal professor. And this is what what God says about the words that he inspired the psalmist to write about God. And he applies it to Jesus. So in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8 it says, But of the Son he says, So this is the writer writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Speaking about what God the Father says about God the Son as he quotes Psalm 45. And Psalm 45 says your throne O God is forever. The scepter of uprightness it, uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Did you see what's going on there? I know, I know you got your iPads out. Some of you right now are checking Facebook or whatever. Stop it and tune in on this. This is super important. The writer of Hebrews is writing saying that God is reading Psalm 45, which speaks about God and interpreting it as speaking about Jesus, who is God. If we were in a court of law, we would, we, would, we would close our little lawyer pamphlet. We would drop the mic and walk off and say, case closed. I find that compelling. I don't know about you. So the scriptures clearly teach that Jesus is God. Jesus himself clearly affirmed this. Sometimes people will say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, not truth. And listen to John chapter 8. Jesus is in a discussion with some religious leaders about his identity, and he is saying some controversial things to them. And in verse 53 of John 8, just before that, Jesus is saying that if anybody abides in him, they will never taste death. This became offensive to the Jewish religious leaders because they're saying, wait a minute now, our father Abraham died, so are you saying that you're greater than Abraham? So verse 53, here's the question that they posed to him in John 8. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? In other words, who are you? Verse 54, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is the Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Verse 58, listen to this. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Why is that so important? Why is that phrase, I am? Jesus is saying, before Abraham was, in other words, he's saying, I, pre, I, I predate Abraham. And not only does he say, I predate Abraham, he identifies himself with the same words that God identifies himself with to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. So do you remember in in Exodus when God is calling Moses and Moses is is debating with God? No, I mean, I don't know if I got what it takes. And and God's telling him, it really doesn't depend on what you got. It depends on who I am. And he says, well, who should I tell them is sending me? And God tells Moses in in Exodus 3, tell them this is who sent you. I am that I am. And so when Jesus uses this phrase, I am... He is clearly calling himself, identifying himself as God. And how do we even know that even more than we read verse 59? Because it ticked them off. They thought it was heretical. They didn't just go, oh, well, that's interesting. We will consider this potential doctrinal point that you are establishing. No, it made them angry. Verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So Jesus is clearly calling himself God. We even see it in Revelation. The beginning of Revelation in chapter 1, verse 8, we see God the Father speaking. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come the Almighty. And then at the end of Revelation, we see Jesus saying the same thing about himself. Revelation 22, verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Friends, we could spend a whole Sunday we could spend a whole series of Sundays on just unpacking all of the biblical evidence that Jesus is fully God. A question that might might arise at times that maybe you've been asked or maybe you've wondered about because we're going to in just a moment talk about how Jesus is not just fully God but he's fully God plus fully man is this idea this this concept or this question of did Jesus ever stop being God? While he took on flesh, while he was on earth? And the answer to that question is an emphatic no. Why do some people wonder this or ask this? Well, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, it says this about Jesus Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, verse 7, but Emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And specifically, verse 7, it says there that Jesus emptied himself. And that, because let's just admit the difficulty of understanding just the mystery of the incarnation, how Jesus could be fully God and fully man, has troubled some people. And some liberal theologians in the 1800s looked at verse 7 of Philippians chapter 2 where it says that Jesus emptied himself and I think they incorrectly came up with, with a, a theory that said that Jesus in order to become fully human while he was on earth gave up or emptied himself or ceased to be God for a period of time while he was on earth as a man. And friends, to that we just have to say that is, uh, I think as we look at the whole span of scripture about what it says to Jesus is clearly, clearly wrong. Yes, sometimes Jesus is is presented in the gospels as being limited in knowledge. For example, when the woman with the issue of blood comes to him and he says, who touched my clothes? But at other times he displays clear supernatural knowledge, numerous times in, in fact. He, he knows the Samaritan's woman's past at, at the well. He knows all about Lazarus and when he's sick and when he's dead. He, he then displays his divinity in miracles and, and weather, stopping weather. And so we see this combination of at times Jesus deciding intentionally to restrain his divinity, but we never see him stop being God. J.I. Packer who well, I mentioned earlier, I think has a very helpful quote. Won't have it on the screen, but let me just read it to you. This is what he says about this idea of Jesus being fully God and fully man and how this is admittedly a challenge to understand, but he never stops being God. He says, The impression of Jesus, which the Gospels give, is not that he was wholly bereft of divine knowledge and power, but he, that he drew on both intermittently while being content for, for much of the time not to do so. Listen to this sentence. I think it's really helpful. The impression, in other words, is not so much one of deity reduced as of divine capacities restrained. So Jesus never stops being God. He is always God. He is God plus man. Why is this so necessary to believe before we move on to looking at Jesus' humanity? Because you may be saying, well, Brad, look, I believe Jesus is God. Come on. Why is, this such a, why is this such a big deal? I think there's two reasons. There's many reasons, but we'll just dwell on two. Why is it necessary to see this and believe this and understand this scripturally? Because, friends, only God, only God could bear the full penalty of sin. You see, herein is the heart of the gospel that God comes to us in our sin and lives the life of, A perfect life as a human never stops being God and then lays down this perfect human life but yet this fully divine life on the cross to bear our sin and no good mere man no matter how good and remarkable he may be could bear the full penalty and the holiness and justice and wrath of God that is deserved for the rebellion of all of his people. Do you see that, friends? What mere man could bear the holy wrath of God? Sin has created an uncontainable problem in humanity. And no mere man can contain it or erase it or reverse its effects by being merely a man, even just merely a perfect man. He needs to be more than that. He needs to be God. Friends, understanding this, I believe, is at the very heart of the gospel. And when we, when we minimize this truth when we're just cultural Christians that grow up in the Bible Belt and we just sort of have a a surface-level acknowledgement that Jesus is God, but it's, you know, I really just kind of accept that. That's not big of a deal. I mean, I, I don't really know how to point to that in Scriptures and I don't know why Jesus had to be God in order to really bear the wrath of God for all those that would turn and trust in Him, we belie that we do not understand the severity and the weight of sin and the beautiful, eternal, unexhaustible holiness of God. We need more than a man. We need God to save us. So only God could bear the full penalty of sin. And then secondly why I think it's necessary to believe this is because we need to see biblically that salvation is of the Lord, not of man. Ultimately, friends, it's God that saves us, not a man that saves us. Jesus' work does not just appease God's justice or put us on probation if we will match it with good behavior. No, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection doesn't just make salvation possible. It actually accomplishes it, and he can accomplish it, not just because he's a good man, but because he is fully God. We are his because he has made us so, because he's God. God alone deserves the glory for salvation, because God alone has accomplished it. We've said this before and I think this is a helpful summary and it is a biblical God-centered orientation and and admittedly it rubs man-centered Americans the wrong way. But friends, it's true and it's good for your soul and the more you anchor yourself in this, what will happen is you will have more gratefulness in your soul for salvation and you will worship God more passionately and you will be a better display of grace. And here's the phrase. And here's salvation I think summarized. We are saved by God, from God, for God. Do you see how, so salvation is God's work from beginning to end. Salvation is not just us being helped in some sort of, neutral, minimized state. No, we were dead in our sins. We could do nothing, and the holy wrath of a righteous God was barreling down on our head, and God interceded, became a man, remained God, and bore the wrath of a holy triune God in himself on the cross. Friends, when we see that, do you see how that humbles us? Do you see how that... Because I think most Christians probably in America that aren't well taught view salvation as like life 2.0 or as if Jesus helped you from the consequences of a stubbed spiritual toe or a spiritual cough. Like he just made you better. Come to Jesus and this is how he will make you a better husband, a better parent, a better whatever. I'm not saying he doesn't make you better. He does. But maybe the making you better is to give your life away for the sake of the gospel in some faraway land where you're martyred. No, the point of the gospel is not that Jesus just helps you with with the, a stubbed toe or a spiritual cough, but that we are dead in our sins and the semi-truck of God's judgment is barreling down on us to separate us from him forever. And because of his grace, he comes and makes us alive and pulls us from that wrath that is bearing down on our head and in fact absorbs it in himself and when we see that as Christianity and the gospel and following Jesus not just being a better life but salvation from eternal separation forever friends do you see how realizing that afresh anchors our soul in confidence and humility and gratitude and joy So salvation is from the Lord. Jesus is fully God. Secondly, Jesus is fully man, clearly. We see this taught in the scriptures. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Two things that we need to think about. We can think about much more, but we'll limit ourselves to two about Jesus' full humanity. One is that he's born of a virgin. Scripture teaches that Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary by a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit and that this was always part of God's plan. It's important for us to see that. It's not like, you know, the Trinity is up there in heaven and Adam and Eve sinned and there's panic now in the triune God. What are we going to do? No, the Bible doesn't present it like that at all. In Ephesians 1, it talks about God having this plan in eternity past to ransom a people for himself, to unite all things to himself through Christ. So we see this, this virgin birth of Jesus being the plan of God. Again, another passage from Isaiah that we'll refer to two weeks ago Isaiah 7 14. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. This has always been God's plan, to come in the flesh. We see it in the first few chapters of Genesis right after the fall. We see this first echo this first shadow of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, this first promise where God is saying that I'm going to come as a seed of the woman and I am going to conquer the enemy. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity, he's speaking now to the serpent, to the devil. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Eve's offspring obviously is a human, a man. He, speaking of eve's offspring speaking of jesus he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel so we see this this early prophetic word of jesus coming through a woman and coming through a virgin why you might ask is the virgin birth necessary well friends clearly it's a it's a miracle And I think it harkens back to the point we made just a moment ago that salvation is from the Lord. It's not from human agency. It's not that he just chose a cute baby and made him into God. No, God, the eternal pre-existent Son of God, takes on flesh. And through this unfathomable mystery, God unites full deity with full humanity. And by the agency, by the work, by the activity of the Holy Spirit, in Mary, he stops the inherited sin of Adam. So like all of us have inherited sin, it's just part of our nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve. Because the Holy Spirit's work in Mary, he stops the inherited sin, and Jesus takes on flesh, and the eternal Son of God is born through the virgin birth. Not just Jesus is born of a virgin, but he also clearly in his life is sinless and perfect in obedience. So Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14, listen to these important words. Since then we have a great high priest speaking of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews is speaking of Jesus who has passed through the heavens, meaning he has become incarnate. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is... Unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, what, what is the writer of Hebrews saying here? He's saying that Jesus has been tempted in every way as we are, he has real flesh that was really tempted. And he wasn't just really tempted in that one scene in the Gospels where it talks about the devil's specific temptation of him, but he was tempted throughout his whole life, and he bore it, and he defeated it through his obedience to God and his law in every way. So Jesus is not just fully God, but he's fully man, born of a woman, sinless, in his life, and perfect in obedience to God in every way. Why is this necessary to believe? Well, friends, here we come to the very heart of the gospel. It's necessary to believe in the full humanity of Jesus because we need a substitute before God. We need a substitute. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says, a few chapters earlier in Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Since therefore, for, therefore the children share in flesh and blood, meaning us because we're humans and we share in flesh and blood, he himself, meaning Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Who are the offspring of Abraham? Well, it's mankind, but in a more specific sense, it is those who have faith in him. Verse 17. Therefore, listen to this, this eternal covenant that God made. He just made this the way things are. Verse 17, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make Propitiation for the sins of the people. There's that word again, propitiation, that Robert did such a wonderful job of explaining last week. It is this beautiful, gospel rich word that is at the very center of the message of the Bible and the message of the New Testament. And it means that Jesus satisfied, he extinguished the wrath of God that was coming down on us by bearing it all on the cross. And because of his godness, his eternal godness, and his perfect humanity, he was able to satisfy the wrath of God. And he didn't just just remove it from us, but he turned it into God's favor for all those that would turn from trusting in themselves and repent and believe in Jesus. So Jesus takes on flesh, becomes like us in every respect so that he can be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Verse 18, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So it's so necessary to see the full humanity of Jesus because we need a substitute. We need to be saved by God, from God, for God. And we need a man to do that because it is man who has sinned. And the wrath of God must be satisfied against sinful flesh. And Jesus takes on flesh and restores the righteousness of humanity and then lays down that life on the cross to bear God's wrath as our substitute. But we don't just need a substitute to extinguish God's wrath and satisfy it. We need a representative. We we need more than our sins to be forgiven. We need righteousness to be restored. And so that's the second thing that we need to realize is necessary for us to believe about Jesus' humanity. His perfect humanity and His full godness don't just remove God's wrath. It restores God's... (coughs) It restores our righteousness. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5, verse 18 and 19. Therefore... As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So he's making this argument. He's saying that we have two heads of humanity. We have the first head, Adam, and he sinned. And because Adam rebelled and sinned, the consequences of that are to sin and death to all that are in Adam. And then we have the second head of humanity, Jesus, the new and better Adam the pre-eternal Son of God who has obeyed God perfectly in every way. And now for all those that are in Him by repentance and faith, through Jesus flows now not just the forgiveness of sins and justification, but His righteousness that is now given to us. So now the beauty of the gospel is not just that we are forgiven, but we now are imputed. We have the righteousness of God given to us. We now have not just our record canceled, but we have Jesus' record imputed to us on the cross. So you know that little bumper sticker that I'm imagining in a crowd this size? Maybe one of you has in the parking lot. And so as soon as we're done, you're going to go right out and you're going to, you're going to mark over it with a sharpie. I'm sorry. I just, I got to tell you this, that little bumper sticker that says Christians aren't perfect. They're just forgiven. I understand the sentiment. But we're, we're, we're far more than just forgiven, friends. We, we, we are infused with the righteousness of Christ because of his full humanity, because he, he did more than just re- remove sin. He restored righteousness, and now when God looks on us, if we are in Christ, he looks on Christ's righteousness. Friends, that is, that is staggering. And again, what should this produce in us? It should produce in us humility and worship and joy which then God uses to be a display of His beauty and kindness to an onlooking world and causes them to want Jesus and trust in Him. Do you see how this works together? Friends, we need more than just a substitute. We need a representative. And this representative of Christ, he's not just a distant legal representative. He is our brother, someone who knows us and has been acquainted with our weaknesses and our frailties. So friends, we're in the court of God. And it's not just like the state has to appoint a lawyer. Well, this guy can't defend himself. Any, anybody? Call the DA's office. Call could anybody. Uh, actually, the DA. They're the ones prosecuting. Anyway, call, call anybody. Anybody? Can anybody defend this guy? I know you don't know him, but you can meet in his jail cell and he can give you a few facts about his life and tell you how, you know, he got wronged. Friends, that's not the gospel. Jesus is our advocate and he's not a detached legal representative who's got a million other cases and doesn't really know us. He has become man. And so we have a God who is not a distant judge, but he is a close brother who has taken on frailty, who has experienced shame and pain and defeated it all in his perfect life and substitutionary death. And he is the one who sits in the courtroom with us. And as we read in Romans 8 several weeks ago, says that he is mine. He's mine. Nothing shall separate him from the love of God. So, friends, what should our response be to this? Well, if you're not a Christian, I pray that as you stare at this truth of the incarnation that God is fully man and fully God, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, that you, by God's sovereign grace, would see him for who he truly is, and that you would consider him, and that you would trust in him. And as we read in John 1, verse 12, that you would receive him and believe in his name. and Because of the gift of faith and repentance that he will give you, you would become a child of God. I beg of you, friends, you must turn and trust in Christ. This wrath of God that is barreling down on our heads. Jesus is clear about this. He says in John 3, 36, that those who believe in him have life, and those that do not believe in him, the wrath of God remains on him. You must believe in this God-man. You must believe in this man, this one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus, I beg of you. And if you need more explanation, or you want to talk further about this truth and what it means to be a Christian and the gospel, don't leave this room without talking to somebody that you know to be a Christian or one of the pastors would be glad to take all afternoon to, to explain this to you in more detail if you have questions. But you must, friends, hear me on this. You don't need to know everything. You don't need to completely understand everything I've said. You must. You are created. And someday you're going to die. And on that day you will stand before your Creator. And you must have something other than your own works and your own righteousness to make it into his heaven, into eternity with him. And your only hope, dear friend, is that you would turn from trusting in yourself and your meager works and your self-righteousness and your sin, and you would put your hope in what God has done in this God-man Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who came, who took on flesh, who bore the wrath of God for all those They would turn from trusting in themselves and put their faith in you. You must do that right now. You don't need to recite a prayer or raise a hand or do anything physical. You need to look away from yourself and look to Jesus. And your only hope of doing that, you may say, what do I have to do? Friends, if your heart is beating right now, and if you're hearing that message and your ears are being opened and your heart is warm to that, friends, I believe that is evidence that God is calling you from death to life. So what do people that are being called from death to life need to do? Breathe. Breathe breathe. Don't do anything. Don't gather all yourself and say, well, I'm better than the next guy. Yeah, I deserve this. No, you don't deserve anything but the wrath of God. Look away from yourself and look to him. Are you hearing these words, friends? I believe that's evidence that God is giving you a heart to believe and eyes to see and ears to hear, friends. You are being born. Now breathe. Look away from yourself and look to Jesus. And friends, I beg you, you must do that. Oh, what folly it is to come to a church like this where some guy gets up and yells at you and preaches hour-long sermons if you don't really believe look away from yourself don't look to your heritage or your southerness or your bible beltness or whatever your church affiliation is in the past look away from yourself and look to Jesus the God man who became flesh who bore God's wrath for you who rose again in victory and now commands you in all grace in all truth to trust in him do it even now do it even now friends and be saved What should our response then be if we're a Christian? Well, I, I pray it's obvious. If we're Christians, we should live humble, bold, grateful, worshipful lives that put the gospel and the beauty of Christ on display. I end with these beautiful words from a hymn that we love to sing here before the throne. Listen to these words of this song you're a Christian, this is true of you because God became flesh, because Jesus is fully God and fully man. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because my sinless Savior died, the man Christ Jesus, because my sinless Savior died, My sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. What glorious news. In just a moment we're going to pray and sing a few songs of response. If you are a Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus, you're welcome to this table to receive these elements of bread and juice which represent Jesus' work on the cross, where we remember His work and examine our lives. If you're not a Christian, I encourage you not to partake of this because we don't want you to be a hypocrite, to proclaim something in an empty way that you don't truly believe. But as I said before, if you want to find out more, have further discussions about the gospel or what it means to be a Christian, we would love to do that with you afterwards. Let's pray now and ask the Lord to stir our affections and worship him as the team comes to lead us in the song of response. Lord, we thank you that you have been satisfied through the holy, perfect God, man, Christ Jesus. There is one mediator between God and man the man, Christ Jesus. Because you sent Christ to become like us and to obey where we rebelled, we can now know you. And we can turn from our sins and turn from our self-righteousness and we can turn in faith and repentance to Christ and be saved. Lord, dig this deep in our soul. Establish this even deeper in the life of this church. May it humble us. May it embolden us. May it make us worship you more passionately. And may it make us a better display for the beauty of your gospel to an onlooking world. And Lord, may you use my meager words as a means of your sovereign grace to call a heart that walked into this room dead and self-absorbed and separated from you. Would you use it as a means to call that person to life? And when you give life, Lord, with that life, you give the gift of faith person can turn away from themselves and turn and trust in what Jesus has done. So God, for any unbeating heart in this room, make it alive in Christ Jesus, I pray. Lord, I pray that you do these things for your glory and our joy as we respond to you now in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.